How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on the teaching of the word this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have and the freedom we have to gather together this evening to study your word. We continue to pray for our nation, to pray for our leadership, political leadership and military leadership. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would get the correct information to them to make the right decisions that would continue to keep our borders protected and to give us success in any military endeavors that we carry out. Father, we know that ultimately our security, our safety, our freedoms derive from you. And so ultimately we are relying upon you to continue to keep us safe. Father, we pray for this church, for the different ministries that are involved in this church. We pray that you would continue to make that possible. We pray that you would continue to give guidance and direction to the leaders of the church. And Father, above all, we pray that we would be a real testimony to those in this area because it is the impact of believers that affects history and affects a nation. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the things that we study, that we would be challenged by the teaching of your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we began a new study in Genesis. And in Genesis we are looking at God's creation at the very beginning. Genesis 1-1 begins, in, in the beginning, God created. And then the last phrase in Genesis chapter 50 is a coffin in Egypt. So we move from the perfect creation of God at the beginning to death at the end of the book. As I said last time, we have to keep in mind the context of Genesis, that this is the prologue, as it were, the introduction to the Pentateuch, the first five books written by Moses that provide the found, provided the foundation for the nation Israel. So in Genesis, Moses is answering the question that is being asked, where did we come from? Why are we as Jews a special people? What is God's plan for us? What gives us a right to the land? I'm sure there were pacifists in their day, just as there are today, who uh, don't have a clue about reality. And so um, God clearly addressed why they were going to go into the land and why there was a reason for them to annihilate every man, woman, and child among the Canaanites and what gave them a right to take that land from the Canaanites. This is the function of Genesis to explain why God had to call out a special nation from among all of the nations 
what the purpose for that nation was and how God would use that nation to bless all of the nations. So the foremost message that we get in Genesis, if we want to summarize much of it, is to the Jew. Remember, if you were a Jew sitting on the plains of Moab, about to go into Israel, about to, I mean, go into the land of Canaan, about to go into battle and take this land from its current residences, uh, from its current inhabitants, then uh, what would you be learning as the main idea from Genesis? And that would be that the God who created all things, the God who created man, the God who sustains all things, is the same God who called Abraham, the same God who created Israel or the nation, the people as a new uh, new race, and it's the same God that sustains Israel through all her travails. Now, we can take that a step further in terms of application for us, that the same God who created all things from nothing, the same God who sustains the universe, the same God who can bring about the incredible judgments of the flood, the judgments against Sodom and Gomorrah, the same is the same God who can protect us and preserve us no matter what crises we encounter, no, what, no matter what national travail we may go through, no matter what kinds of terrorist attacks we may endure, no matter what kind of difficulties our uh, men and women may face in combat, the same God that sustained that sustains the universe, the same God who sustained Israel, is the same God who can sustain us and protect us. Now, having said that, there's a tremendous amount that we can learn in Genesis about God. Last time I took one hour, a little over an hour, to go through the entire uh, book of Genesis. And we laid the overview so that you have some sort of an understanding of who the main characters are and what the main events are in Genesis. Tonight, I want to do another overview, and that is look at what Genesis teaches us about God and man. What do we learn about God? This was one of the main reasons that Moses wrote Genesis, is to teach the Jews about this God who had called them out and what that God could do. So we learn a number of things about God in Genesis, but the first way we learn about God is by observing the names of God in Genesis. Remember to a Jew, to a Hebrew, to someone in the ancient world, a name is not simply nomenclature. A name for something is not simply a tag, something you just hook on something so that you know what to call it. A name says something about its uh, inherent nature, its essence, its character. The names of people said something about their, their character, their background, their, their uh, attributes. And so the names for God tell us something about who he is and what he can do. And I have 11 different names uh, listed here that are used in Genesis to refer to God. I don't claim that this is an exclusive list, but these are the primary names that are used of God that teach us and would have taught the Jews uh, something about who this God was who had called them as a new nation. The first name is the term El or Elohim. El or Elohim, and this would be the standard or generic name in Semitic languages for a deity. The word El is uh, roughly uh, 
a cognate of the Arabic al for Allah in Allah. But that does not mean they are the same God. It is just a generic term. El in Hebrew is just a generic term for deity. Now, the form Elohim, where you have that plural ending, H-I-M, that indicates plurality. Now, it is typical whenever you look at Hebrew grammars and, and uh, Hebrew lexicons that, uh, and many commentaries that when it comes to the Old Testament and the term Elohim, writers often emphasize that this is a plural of majesty. Don't try to read the Trinity into this. Now, I disagree with that because in many places, as we will see in, in, in Genesis uh, 1 as well, you have this plural noun, Elohim. For example, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you have, And God said, Elohim said, Let us make man in our image. So you not only have a plural noun, but you have plural pronouns that go along with it. While that does not necessarily teach the Trinity, it certainly teaches or suggests a plurality in the Godhead that is later developed. And there are other passages in in the Old Testament that I think give a much clearer indication of the Trinity. But to just dismiss this as a plural of majesty, I think, does it uh, a tremendous amount of injustice. The second word that we find in the Hebrew text for God is the word Yahweh. Now, Elohim is used in Genesis chapter 1 exclusively. You do not find any other name for God in Genesis chapter 1. And it's not until Genesis chapter 2 that we're introduced to the title uh, or God's personal name, Yahweh. This is based on the Hebrew, what's called the sacred tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means four letters because in Hebrew, especially in Paleo-Hebrew or early Hebrew, there were no vowel points. All you have is consonants. So you had four letters, a yod, a he, a vav, and another he. And this would be, there were no vowels there. We know that this first syllable was probably uh, vocalized with a um, an a, because you have this in the, na- in the ending of numerous names in the Old Testament. For example, Jeremiah and Zechariah end with this Y-A-H ending, which is the name for God. Zechariah is from Zakar, meaning remember, God remembers. So you have, uh, we have a pretty good understanding of this. And based on uh, phonetics and other things, it's uh, suggested that the, the ending at uh, the last syllable is probably a short E sound, Yahweh. Now, what's interesting in this is that you have a letter. The first letter is a Yod, which is roughly our Y, and then the third letter is a W. And what's happened is that over the years, you had a tremendous number of German scholars working on Hebrew, and you had a number of Jews that lived in uh, the area of Germany who contributed to this. And so remember in German, you um, the the Y is written with a J, and a W is pronounced like a V. So that's where you pick up your letters J and V, and then you had J-H and V-H. Now another word that is used in Hebrew, for, for which is just a generic term for Lord, 
is the Hebrew word Adonai. A-D-O-N-A-Y. And actually, this is, a, this is an olive, which is more like a soft guttural. And underneath you had a, a um, short E. So it was actually vocalized with more of an E at the front. So if you took these vowels, E, O, and A, and inserted them, you come up with the name Jehovah. But Jehovah is not a Hebrew word at all. It is a compound of Yahweh plus Adonai. Now, the Jews treated the name of God with reverence, so they would ne- never pronounce Yahweh. When they read it, they would, they would, uh, what happened was when they added vowel points to it, they actually added, uh, different vowel points so that the vowel points would remind the reader to read Adonai instead of, of, uh, reading Yahweh. So it was that compound of the consonants from one name and the and the vowel points from another name that produced this sort of hybrid word Jehovah. But uh, that's why one of the basic reasons the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have problems is they they think you ought to pray everything to Jehovah, and yet Jehovah really doesn't exist. So uh, that's just for your information there. So the second name that is used for God is is Yahweh. This is the personal name for God, and it is the name for God that is emphasized as as the covenant name for God for Israel. So whenever they see that name, it is going to remind them that this is the God who has entered into a personal covenant relationship with uh, Abraham, with Moses, and that this is a God who is the specific God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The key verse for Yahweh is found in Exodus 3.14 where God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses said, well, if I'm going to go to the Jews and tell them that a deliverer has sent me, who shall I say that you are? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This, this name, Yahweh, is based on the Hebrew verb, Hayah. So you have, it's looks like this in the Hebrew, and that would be H-A-Y-A-H. And that is the verb to be or to exist. So it is generally understood that the name of God emphasizes His existence, that it refers to God as the self-existent one, and that He is the one who has no beginning and no end. And then frequently you find that these first two names in, in compound, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And you will always know when, the, when Yahweh is at the back of the English word Lord, because in most English Bibles they will make uh, those four letters, L-O-R-D, in small caps. So when you see that, and sometimes if it's Adonai Yahweh, it will be Lord in, in uh, lowercase letters, uh, then God will be in small caps. But if you see a name for God, Lord or God, in small caps, then that means uh, that, that what underlies that in the Hebrew is the term Yahweh. So Yahweh Elohim takes the generic term God and 
focuses it on the Yahweh who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fourth name for God is the term that is used in Genesis 14, 18, 19, and 20. Chapter 14, verses 18, 19, 20, and 22. This is where Abraham refers to God as the Lord God Most High, and Most High is the term El Elyon. El Elyon. This name emphasizes the exalted status of God, that he has overwhelming power. It emphasizes his supreme majesty. And it was the sin of Lucifer to want to be like the Most High God. It is uh, referred to in the Psalms. It is Elyon who is the place of shelter. He is the rock in the midst of our adversity. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. And in the Psalms, it is God referred to as Elyon who has the deepest concern for Israel and for Zion. Psalm 46.6 and Psalm 87.5. Now look at some other passages in the Psalms related to um, the Lord God Most High. But first, before we look at those, in Genesis 14.22... God is referred to first as the Lord God Most High, El Elyon, and then he's described as the possessor of heaven and earth, the possessor of heaven and earth. And that word translated possessor is the Hebrew word kone, which means to own something, to possess something, to acquire or purchase something. So it refers to God as the Most High God, the owner of heaven and earth, that he is above all gods, and everything that occurs in heaven and earth is under his dominion and under his sovereignty. So this term, El Elyon, is going to emphasize God is the owner of the heavens and the earth, and therefore the one who has the right to rule the heavens and the earth. Several times in the Psalms, God is referred to as the Most High God, El Elyon. Psalm 47, 2, For the Lord most high is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. So this term, the Lord most high, is in parallel to a great king. It emphasizes his sovereignty, his rule over the universe. Psalm 97, 9 reads, For thou art the Lord most high. The Lord, that is Yahweh, see how that's in caps? The Lord most high, El Elyon, over all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. That would be all the pseudo-gods of idolatry, of the false religions, of the people who had lived in the land and the people who surrounded Israel. And then in Psalm 91.1 we're told, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And that brings in another word for God, which we'll look at in a minute, Shaddai, that he is the all-powerful one. And here we see an emphasis in Psalm 91 of the protection of God for all believers, that no matter what problems we face, no matter what difficulties we face, no matter how chaotic life may may appear at times, that when we are... Uh, in fellowship with him, and we are walking with him. With it. He is our shelter. He is our uh, support. He is our defense. And then in Psalm 91.9, the psalmist in the same psalm expands that concept, and he says, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. He is our refuge. He is our dwelling place. He is the Lord who rules and reigns above everything. He is the Lord who owns the heaven and the earth, and he is the one 
in whom and with whom we take shelter. And then Psalm 78.35 reminds uh, the readers of the history of Israel that at one time they had rebelled against God, and then in verse 35, and then they remembered that God was their rock, and the Most High God, El Elyon, was their Redeemer. So El Elyon is tied to God's sovereignty and His protection and care for the believer. And then the fifth name we run into in, in uh, Genesis for God is El Ra'i, El Ra'i, in Genesis 16:13, where Hagar says, "You are the God who sees." And she uses the term, the verb to see, to indicate God's perceptiveness about people. He knows the future. He knows Hagar's predicament. And God comes along and predicts her future and the future of her son Esau. He is the God who sees. And the God who sees and knows about her travails and her problems and her difficulties is the same God who sees and knows about all of our difficulties and all of our problems. And he is the same God who supplies the same grace to be sustained in those difficulties. Then the sixth name for God is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. This term is used twice in Genesis in Genesis 17:1 and in Genesis 35:11 and it means God the Almighty emphasizes God's power this term is used most often in Job 48 times this term is used to describe God in the Old Testament 31 of those times are in Job Job is the book where we see the hero Job going through the most difficult suffering imaginable And so it is in the context of that suffering that God is referred to as God the Almighty, that he is more powerful than any difficulties we can face in time. In fact, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint use the Greek term pantokrator, the all-powerful one, to translate this term El Shaddai. So it emphasizes God's omnipotence, which means his ability to perform whatever he desires. That's important. That's a very technical definition. Omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything. You know, if, you, if you define it that way, some smart aleck going to come along and say, well, can God make a four-sided triangle? Or can God make a five-sided square? And they're going to come up with some kind of logical impossibility. Omnipotence doesn't mean God can do anything but it means that God can do anything God desires to do. And there is a fine distinction there. God can accomplish and bring about anything that he desires to do. So El Shaddai emphasizes God's God's power. It's interesting in rabbinical theology... They understood El Shaddai to refer to God as the self-sufficient one, that he, and that ties in with the concept of being all-powerful, that he is sufficient in and of himself to accomplish whatever he intends to accomplish. Then the seventh name for God is El Olam. El Olam. Yahweh El Olam, the eternal God or the everlasting God in Genesis 21:33. The eternal God or the everlasting God. Genesis 21:33. Here it emphasizes God's attribute of eternal life. That God has neither beginning 
nor ending. He is the self-existent one. He is not simply an uncaused cause. He is, he is a person. He is, uh, he is infinite. He has no beginning or no ending, and all of his attributes are infinite. The eighth name for God is the term that you've probably heard pronounced Jehovah Jireh, which actually in the Hebrew reads, uh, Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh Yireh. And it's found in Genesis chapter 22:14 in the context of Abraham following God's command to sacrifice Isaac, where Abraham takes Isaac up on Mount Moriah, which is the same as the Temple Mount where the uh, Dome of the Rock exists today. And it was at that, that place in the ancient world that Abraham built an altar and was going to do exactly what God said to do and was going to sacrifice as a human sacrifice his son Isaac, the promised seed, the promised son whom God had given him. And just as he was about to, uh, to, to kill his son, God stays his hand and there is a ram that's caught in the bushes and that is to be the substitute for Isaac. And it's a tremendous picture of the ram as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who dies in our place just as that ram died in the place of Isaac. Uh, Jesus Christ died in our place and the message is at that time that God is the one who supplies. God actually comes from the same root as the God who sees uh, the, the fifth name for God. It's the God who really sees, but it's the God who sees, understands, and supplies the needs. That's the inference in the Hebrew. God supplies the need. He provides our substitute. He provides what we need as a sacrifice for sin. So the emphasis in uh, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh is that God supplies all of our needs, especially our need for salvation. The ninth name for God is uh, Yahweh, the God of the heavens. Yahweh, the God of the heavens. Yahweh Elohim Hashemayim in Genesis 24:7. Yahweh Elohim Hashemayim, the heavens, and that indicates His sovereignty over all of the heavens. That God is the King of the heavens. And he is the ruler of the heavens and the ruler of the earth and the affairs of mankind. And notice how these names constantly repeat the same themes, that God is the sovereign God. God is the almighty God. God is the ruler over the heavens and the earth. God is the ruler over the details of man. God is the one who sees and supplies the need. And here you are as a Jew in the generation that is going to go in and conquer the land. Remember, your parents failed. They went into the land. The spies went into the land. And they came back and they, they whined and they moaned. And they said, you know, we can't do it. We can't take the land. There's, there's the, there, the people are too numerous. And there are giants in the land. And they live in walled cities. And, and we can't do this. We can't take the land. And so they failed. And God said, because they failed to trust him to overcome all of these obstacles, that generation would stay in the wilderness. They would never enter the land. They would all die before they entered the land, and then it would be their children that would go into the land and experience the blessing of living 
in, in the promised land. So it is these children that are now on the edge of entering into the land. And as they read through Genesis, they're constantly being reminded by the names of God of his power, of his provision, of his authority over the universe, that he is the God who is greater than all of the gods of the, of the Gentile peoples and of the, of the Canaanites. In fact, as we'll see when we get into Genesis chapter one, if you understand what is going on in mythology at that time, if you understand the Canaanite religions and the Babylonian religions that were dominant at that time, there is a tremendous level of uh, of polemic. That's like an argument or a, or a sarcasm in Genesis chapter 1. Almost every verse contains some subtle slap in the face to some Canaanite or pagan god. It is extremely argumentative, demonstrating that God is greater than all of these nature gods that are worshipped by the people who are inhabiting the land. So it's a time of, of tremendous confidence building for the for the Jews. And then the tenth name is El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. El Elohe Israel in Genesis thirty three twenty. God is referred to as the God of Israel, of Jacob. And then the final name is really a title, a description of God, uh, Roeh Evan Israel. Roeh Evan Israel, it means the shepherd, the rock of Israel. In Genesis 49, 24, this emphasizes God in his role as the shepherd of Israel, the leader of Israel. He is the one who takes care of them just as a shepherd provides for and protects the flock out in the wilderness. It is God who provides for and protects Israel in the wilderness. It emphasizes his role as the leader and the protector of Israel. So these 11 names and titles emphasize the character and attributes of God that are learned in the book of Genesis. Now, what else did Moses teach the Jews at this time about God? And what has Moses, by virtue of that, taught us about God? There are several different attributes of God that are emphasized in the book of Genesis. First is that God is a living God. God is a living God who is deeply involved with his creation. How many times do we think of God as some sort of distant God, some sort of God who we, we pray to him again and again and again about some situation. And we think, well, well, is God just so concerned about what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on and with terrorism that he's not really paying attention to my prayers right now? And we, we think that somehow God has, has just gotten involved somewhere else, and we have a low view of God, a limited view of God. We think of deism that had the view of God as sort of a watchmaker that just wound up the universe and tossed it out there. Now he's off somewhere else doing something else, letting the universe just run according to preset mechanistic laws. But this is in contrast to what Genesis teaches. Genesis teaches that God is a living God who is deeply and intimately involved with every aspect of his creation so that the laws of nature are really the laws of God, the laws that he set in motion and the laws that he continues to watch over and the laws that he continues to uh, sustain. 
So first of all, we see that that he is etern- that God is eternally existing, and he is distinct from all creation. This is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hashemaim v'ha'aretz in the Hebrew. Now this would have been, this statement stands in marked contrast to every other statement in the ancient world or even in modern times about creation. And we will study this in more detail in a few weeks. But if you read the ancient myths, you read the modern scientific myths of Darwinism, what you have is the universe that creates God and man. The universe through time and chance and chaos somehow spawns gods and men. But in the first verse of the Bible, it is God who stands apart. He is completely and totally distinct from everything in creation. The universe is finite. God is infinite. The universe and everything in it is made by him, and therefore he is able to control everything down to the most minute detail in creation. So the very first verse emphasizes God as something completely different from everything else in creation, and he is the eternally existing one. Second, we see God in Genesis as one who interacts with man. He comes and walks in the garden in the cool of the day and teaches Adam and the woman before the fall. He is the one who seeks out and takes the initiative to spend time with them, to find out what the problem was after they disobey him. He is the one who takes the initiative to provide a solution to the problem that man has created. It is God who speaks. It is God who sees. It is God who hears the problems of man. It is God who rests at the end of the creation week. God is intimately involved with his Creation. He interacts with mankind throughout creation. You see this in Genesis chapters 1, chapters 2, chapters 3, chapters 17, 18, and other chapters. Third, he is the one who created mankind as a reflector of himself. Man is created in the image and likeness of God. We are to reflect God's character, reflect his attributes. We represent God. We were originally designed to represent God and to rule over creation, Genesis chapter 1. Fourth, God is the one who enters into the human arena with a human form and human acts. In Genesis 12, Genesis 18, and Genesis 32, he, in Genesis 18, he and two angels come walking out of the desert up to Abraham and his tent. And Abraham comes out and he feeds and he uh, gives them an opportunity to rest. And it is God who enters into the human arena. He has a human form there, and this shows the Excuse me, the divine initiative of grace. He reveals himself. Fifth, he reveals himself. God is not hiding from man. He's not playing sort of a cosmic hide-and-seek game with man. You see, God is continually giving uh, a testimony to himself. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 1 that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the creation. God reveals himself. He takes the initiative again and again and again. If people don't see God, it's because they don't want to see God. He is the one who is continuously seeking man, saving man, disclosing himself and revealing himself to mankind. 
So these five points all relate to God as the living God who is deeply and intimately involved with his creation. Furthermore, or second, in a broad category, we see the emphasis on the sovereignty of God in Genesis, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. God is the ruler of the heavens and the earth, the one who disposes as he wills. He is called the Most High God, as we have seen already, God El Elyon. In Genesis 14, 18, 19, 20, and 22, he is the Most High God. He is, in Genesis chapter 1, the creator of everything. There is nothing in the heavens or on the earth. There is nothing you can think of that does not owe its existence and its sustenance to God. He controls everything. He is the creator of everything. Third, we see his acts in Genesis chapter 1 as a God who names some things in individuals. He names the the light day and the darkness night. His naming of things indicates his control. It indi- he, he determines the limits that the animals will, uh, will uh, procreate after their kind. He determines the limits, the boundaries of the waters and the land, and he determines nature. It is God who determines that something is what it is. It is not what it is because of chance. Now, I'm going to probably say this a hundred times in the next couple of months. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe the Scriptures, and you believe in Genesis 1 as a clear statement of a seven-day creation or restoration, as we'll see, then when you look at an oak tree, you do not see the same tree that an unbeliever sees. Oh, you see leaves, and you see acorns, and you see branches. But what you see is something that was intricately designed and created by God, and what they see is something that is there by pure random chance. That means that whatever else is said about that tree, you believers do not see the same thing as unbelievers. And that the implication of that is profound because that means there's no neutral ground. There's no neutrality. We cannot go out there in the creation and say, well, let's find some common ground in the creation that we can agree on. We can't agree on anything. The tree you believe in, the tree you see, is not the tree they see. The the grass that you see is not the grass they see. The eagle you see is not the eagle they see. The, the monkeys you see are not the monkeys they see because what they see is something that is the product of time and chance and it just happens to be there. And what you see is something that was purposely put there and designed that way by an omnipotent, sovereign God. And that makes all the difference in the world. So God names some things. He names some individuals. Adam, and initially he calls Eve the woman, Isha, Ish, and Isha. And he determines the limits, boundaries, and nature of things. Fourth, God sets forth mandates and prohibitions for all things. He has mandates and prohibitions for all things. After creating the animals in, in Genesis chapter 1, he says that they are to multiply according to their kind, and he blesses them and gives an order to all living things to be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the earth, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So he gives mandates and prohibitions for all things, indicating that he rules. It's not there by chance. Uh, fifth, we see that God brings about judgment in the curse of sin. When he is disobeyed, he judges that disobedience 
and he outlines the consequences of that disobedience and the curse in Genesis chapter 3. He brings about judgment on the evil of man at the time of the worldwide flood under Noah. He brings about another judgment on mankind, rebellious mankind, at the Tower of Babel. And he brings about judgment on Sodom and the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah. So God brings about judgment in the curse of sin, the flood, at Babel, and at Sodom. Sixth, in terms of his sovereignty, God is able to prophesy and predict the future, indicating his control of human history. God controls human history and brings about his purposes in history, and that is why he can prophesy the future, Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis 46. Seventh, God disposes of people, of property. He gives Canaan to his people. Notice how God says that Canaan has a right to the land. He tells Abraham in Genesis 12 that, that their evil has not uh, reached its uh, fullness yet. So he does not take the land away from the Canaanites until the proper time, and then he takes it away from them and gives that to his people. shows that God has the right to determine who will live where and who owns what property. Eighth, God promises kings to Sarah. He says, you will have kings that come forth from you. He is able to control who her descendants are and what their powers will be. Genesis 17. Ninth, God controls people's dreams. Abraham has dreams. In Genesis 15, Jacob has dreams. In Genesis 28 and 31, Joseph interprets dreams in 30, chapter 37 and 40 to 41. God controls people's dreams and communicates through those dreams. Tenth, God establishes, establishes and removes people in political power. He raises up some and he removes others. One example is seen in Genesis chapter uh, 41. God sustains Abimelech in his rule over the Philistines. Eleventh uh, point, he tests people. Genesis 22, he tests Abraham's faith by ordering him to sacrifice his son Isaac. So God tests people to see if they truly trust him. Twelfth, God rules over nations, economies, and life. God rules over nations, economies, and life. Genesis 40 to 41. Ultimately, economics are not determined by the market. They are determined by God. Genesis 40 to 41. And then last but not least, 13, God chooses whom he will bless. He chose to call out Abraham. He chose to make a special people out of Abraham. He chose to bless him. That choosing of, of Abraham did not involve his eternal salvation. It involved God's special plan for Abraham and his descendants that God would bless them and use them to bring about his redemptive plan. We're not talking about God's some sort of overriding decision in terms of salvation. Then we see an emphasis that God is omnipotent throughout Genesis. God is omnipotent. He is the one who creates the heavens and the earth and every detail in the heavens and the earth. If God is in control of all of the details of the creation, then certainly God is 
can oversee the details in your life and my life. God creates the heavens and the earth. Second, he creates the human race. He creates mankind and sustains mankind. God is all-powerful. Third, he prevents Enoch from dying. In Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with the Lord, and he was not. Enoch did not die. He just walked off into heaven with God one day. So God prevents Enoch from dying physically. Fourth, he controls the time and the duration and the extent of the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. Think about that. What could seem to be more chaotic than this 40 days and 40 nights of rain and then the water continues to, to rise for another 180 days so that all, uh, all mammal life on the planet was destroyed, everyone except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. And God controlled the time, the duration, and the extent of the flood. It lasts exactly one year from the day Noah steps on the ark till the day he comes off. That is not chance. That shows the omnipotent control of God. He protects Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 from the assaults of the five kings, or the four kings, who come in from the east to uh, conquer the land. He protects Abraham and gives him victory over Melchizedek and his allies. Sixth, God controls the womb. In many cases, he closes the womb so that Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel could not give birth. And this is not because God was was mean-spirited, but God was teaching that he is the one and he alone brings life where there is deadness. It's a picture of the fact that God is the one who brings spiritual life where there is spiritual death. God uh, controls the womb. Uh, Genesis 20, 21, 25, and chapter 30. Then with Jacob... Jacob, he, God controls the fertility of the flock. So when Jacob is raising his flock separate from Laban's flocks, and Laban sets up one condition and says, well, let me see, you can keep all the spotted lambs and, and I'll keep all the other ones. Well, all the spotted, all of a sudden, all the, uh, all the sheep are giving birth to spotted lambs. And so, uh, Jacob is blessed and then, then uh, Laban switches the conditions, and then all of a sudden the the other lambs, the other sheep start giving birth to uh, lots of uh, lambs. And whatever whatever conditions Laban set up, Jacob uh, continues to prosper because God is the one who controls the fertility of the flocks. And then God is the one who can cripple a man. He cripples Jacob with simply the touch of his hand in Genesis. Chapter 32. So God is omnipotent. He controls things. He is more powerful than the details of life. And then we see that God is righteous and just in Genesis, that he is not a capricious God, but he is a God who is righteous and just in contrast to the, the uh, gods of the Gentiles. He punishes disobedience with death. Spiritual death is the punishment for the disobedience of Adam and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Second, God is the one who announces a just judgment on sin for disobedience to him. So he applies his righteous standard to the affairs of mankind. Third, he punishes Cain for murder. He punishes Cain for murder, but because it's at such an early stage of the human race, he does not take Cain's life, but puts a mark on him and protects him. And we'll see that's a sign of God's graciousness uh, in Genesis. But he punishes Cain for murder. 
Then, fourth, we see in Genesis 6-8 that God destroys the inhabitants of the earth because man is evil and the thoughts of his heart are evil continuously. So God destroys the earth and everyone in the human race except for Noah and his family. Fifth, God scatters the nations because of their rebellion. In Genesis chapter 11, he scatters the nations because of their rebellion. He is a righteous God who executes judgment from the supreme court of heaven. Sixth, he curses and blesses people as due to how they treat Abraham's seed. He is going to curse and bless people and nations due to how they treat Abraham's seed. And this is a major theme throughout the rest of Genesis. You can pay attention to whenever Abraham is associated with somebody, if they're positive to him, they are blessed. We see the, even the, the horrible uh, kings of the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah are blessed by Abraham's presence because he is the one who goes out and destroys the armies of Melchizedek and his allies and rescues uh, the cities of the plain. So they are blessed by association with Abraham. God curses and blesses people uh, due to how they treat Abraham's seed. Seventh, God refuses to judge the innocent along with the guilty. He will not judge Lot and his family if they are righteous along with all of the unrighteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sends the two angels to warn them and to get them out. And there was an opportunity for for Lot's daughters and their husbands. He had other daughters and their husbands who refused to leave, who laughed at the warning of the angels, and they were killed in the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot and two of his unmarried daughters and his wife escaped, but then she looked back and she lost her life and got turned into a pillar of salt. Uh, eighth, God treats the kings of the earth justly. When Abraham goes to Abimelech the, and Gerar, Gerar as the uh, leader of the Philistines, Abraham's going to protect his wife and has her just, just uh, say that he, she is his sister. She is, in fact, his half-sister. But uh, Abimelech doesn't know that, and he's about to put Sarah in his harem. And God... Uh, warns Abimelech, and instead of destroying Abimelech, he protects him. He treats him justly, even though Abimelech is an unbeliever. God is the one in protect, who protects and vindicates his people. Rachel and Leah, the two daughters of Laban, are treated unjustly by their father Laban, yet God vindicates them when they uh, finally leave and head back to the promised land. Jacob works for Laban, and even though he is uh, treated harshly and mistreated by Laban, God protects and ultimately vindicates uh, Jacob. And then a tenth observation is God made things right uh, for Joseph. He made things right for Joseph, even though Joseph was unjustly charged and unjustly imprisoned. Eventually, Joseph was released and placed in the second highest position in Egypt. God uh, exercised his righteousness toward Joseph. So the Supreme Court of Heaven took care of the details. It was not up to Joseph to vindicate himself. And then finally we see an emphasis in Genesis on the grace of God, on the grace of God, that God provides everything for mankind in the perfect environment of the garden. God provides everything for mankind in the perfect environment of the garden. He, there is nothing left to chance. God supplies everything 
that man could ever want. God always supplies everything. His grace is sufficient. And then, after their disobedience, God provided a physical covering for the sinners, physical clothes for them despite their disobedience, and he provides salvation and life for mankind. They do not deserve it. Uh, they have done nothing to earn it or deserve it, but God graciously provides it. He, uh, third, he protected Cain from avengers and put a mark on Cain to warn off those who would avenge him that they would suffer the justice of God if they avenged the death of Abel. Fourth, he gave grace to Noah in the earth, and it took Noah 120 years. Or there was a 120-year warning period there to warn the earth about the coming judgment. And it was during that time that Noah and his sons went throughout the world uh, preaching the gospel, and yet there was no one who responded. God gave grace to Noah and the earth for 120 years, and then, fifth, he remembered Noah in chapter 8 and Abraham in chapter 19, and God blessed them and protected them. That's part of God's grace. Sixth, God provided water and protection for, in the wilderness for Hagar in chapter 16 and 21. Hagar, the Egyptian, uh, slave and of, of uh, Sarah, who's the father of Ishmael, and Hagar, who's probably not a believer. God, nevertheless, provides for her and protects her. This is his grace. Uh, seventh, God preserved the righteous in the covenant. He preserves the righteous in the covenant in chapter, uh, chapter 19. Uh, God intervenes again and again and again when people fail. Chapter 12, chapter 20, and chapter 26. God intervenes when human fails, and God always supplies what is needed. Ninth, he freely established his covenant and blessed deceptive Jacob. Jacob, who's the heel grabber. Jacob, who is the one who comes in and, and uh, takes the, takes the uh, birthright from his brother Esau for a mess of, mess of pottage or a bowl of lentils. And then, uh, again, he dresses up and deceives his father and and uh, fixes a meal for him and takes the blessing that should have gone to Esau, even though Jacob steals the blessing uh, in a deceptive manner, God still freely blesses him, not because he's earned it or deserved it, but to emphasize the fact that it is God's plan, not our plan, God's agenda, not our agenda. It is God who graciously sent angels to watch over and protect Jacob in Genesis 28 and in Genesis 32. He watches over and protects us even when we don't deserve it, even when we are in rebellion. He gave prosperity to Jacob in chapter 33. He prospered him. His flocks increased. He, he gave him 12 sons and one daughter, uh, not because Jacob deserved it, but because of God's plan and God's grace, God's character. And then 12th, he blesses Egypt with the future knowledge of a coming famine, and provided Joseph as someone to lead them through the crisis in chapters 39 and following. So in all of this, we see again and again the grace of God reaching out towards man, undeserved merit and undeserved favor. And then finally, we learn eight things about man. Eight things about mankind. We not only learn about God, but we learn about who and what man is. First of all, that man is created with a mortal body uh, framed, that should be framed, from the dust of the earth. 
framed from the dust of the earth. He's created with a mortal body framed from the dust of the earth. Second, man's immaterial nature. So he's made up of two components, a physical body that comes from the dust of the earth, and second, an immaterial nature that comes directly from the breath of God, the neshama of God. God breathes into the uh, physical body to uh, make him a living soul. So that brings up point three, that man is composed, human life is composed of biological life, the physical body formed from the chemicals of the soil, plus soul life, the immaterial life that is breathed into man by God. And this makes man in the image of God. He is unique from all other creatures because his life comes from God. Man is the image of God, and this term refers to his function, not his form. His function and his fellowship with God. His, he is to serve God and obey God, and he is to rule over creation and administer the kingdom for God. We learn that man was created male and female, and they are to complement each other. The man is the leader, and the woman is to assist or help him in fulfilling the mission that God has given them. The man and the woman are to complement each other. There is not conflict. There is a, a complementarian role as originally designed. It is only with sin that it becomes a conflict. Sixth, man is created perfect. Man is created perfect, but his disobedience destroys the perfection of the universe and brings horrendous consequences upon himself and the universe. His sin doesn't just affect man. It just doesn't bring a fall to man. It affects the animal kingdom. It affects nature. It affects everything in creation. That one bad decision that Adam made reverberates throughout the entire universe. And that is point seven, that man now has a disposition toward evil, toward rebellion, toward self-sufficiency and autonomy. Man is a rebel against his creator and seeks to be like the Most High, following in the footsteps of Lucifer. And that means that man is in desperate need of a Savior. Man is in desperate need of a Savior, but it is God in his grace initiative who is going to provide a Savior and provide salvation. So in all of this we see tremendous doctrines, tremendous principles that are going to be emphasized again and again throughout Genesis, emphasizing the power, the grace, the righteousness, and the love of God and man's need that is completely supplied by the grace of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to, to be reminded of what an awesome, powerful Majestic God that you are, a God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, a God who is, is intimately involved in every detail of our life, every, every thought in our soul, a God who, who uh, seeks a relationship with us and desires to have that relationship with us and has provided everything we need in order to renovate our thinking and renovate our lives so that we can be restored to fulfilling that original mission of being your representative to the creation and to mankind. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.